Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. From the 17th District of California, Congressman Ro Khanna next on Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Vince and Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Goldco. Hey everybody, welcome back to Vince and Jason Save the Nation. Appreciate your subscription. If you haven't done that yet, please subscribe wherever you find a podcast and certainly on YouTube and Facebook. Like, subscribe, comment, and share to help people see these conversations. We have a great one today. Jason Nichols, what are we up to? Well, today we have an incredible guest uh, from the 17th District of California, Ro Khanna. He represents Sil- Silicon Valley. How are you doing, Ro? I'm doing well. Excited to be on. Yeah, we're, we're definitely excited to have you. Now, of course, there, there are lots of political issues uh, that need to be discussed. And I, I actually want to start out by asking you a question from uh, your past. And I know that you uh, filed an amicus brief uh, on behalf of 13 social scientists in Fisher versus the University of Texas that essentially said that racial considerations and administrate and uh, admissions work to create a healthy, diverse environment at colleges and universities. Uh, As you know, there are Asian Americans suing universities like Harvard over racial considerations that they claim put them at a disadvantage. Uh, You know, as an Asian American, but someone who also believes in uh, equity uh, in education, uh, I just wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on the Harvard case and affirmative action policies broadly. Well, I'm an Asian American. I'm uh, a son of immigrants, was born in Philadelphia in 1976, but I had the opportunity, I don't talk about it often, but to go to an Ivy League school. I went to, to Yale Law School. Let me tell you, I uh, think it was very, very good that that was diverse and it would have been better if it were more diverse because you can't emerge as a, uh, a thinker or a leader uh, in this country if you're not exposed to uh, people from all parts of the country and have their perspective. So there's far more, I, I, I represent a majority Asian American district and I say this to kids all the time, there's far more to leadership and success in American society in the corporate world or political world uh, than a high test score. I, I don't know the last time that someone asked uh, President Biden or President Trump for his GPA. I mean, that's not how you succeed in American society. It's pro- probably much more important for you to understand uh, the South or the Midwest. So to my, my view is actually, it's important for actual success to have diversity. Right, but isn't, the, isn't using race as a proxy for diversity a pretty a shallow way to assess whether or not you have a diverse class or a diverse organization? Uh, you know, you look at, like for instance, uh, the, the Biden administration, certainly as they were assembling, there was a lot said about it, the idea that, oh, we have all these diverse picks, but then you go down the list and figure out, okay, where did they go to school? These are like Ivy Leaguers and McKinsey consultants and people who worked in corporate America, and they all kind of come from the same class. They're actually, they're actually a part of the same exact social circle. So, you know, is there a risk that by kind of claiming that we're pursuing diversity and we choose some so, sort of shallow metric to do that, that we're actually um, not making anything diverse. We're, we're pursuing sort of the same sort of old uh, class monogamy. There's Monog- a risk if, if, mm-hmm. if, if race was the only and dispositive factor, and I would totally uh, oppose that. I mean, but 
Uh, I don't think it's a risk if race is one of the considerations. So, of course, there are a lot of exclusions. Rural America is often excluded. The working class is often excluded. You're right. We probably have too many people overrepresented uh, from the Ivy League. Corporate leaders, my view is that it's probably good that we have some corporate leaders in government. I mean, I, I'm progressive, but I disagree with there was a letter circulating that we shouldn't have anyone who's uh, led a company in government. That would be a mistake. I mean, we probably want people who understand business to also be in government. But if your point is that there's been a governing class in this country that hasn't opened enough to all of the perspectives of uh, American society, that's correct. Uh, I do think, though, that race is one of those important considerations, not the only one. What do you think, you know, in California in particular, um, I believe it was Prop 16, uh, this effort to basically say, yeah, we should have some racial discrimination uh, when it comes to admissions, that it was an affirmative action proposition. And so California, interestingly, is as uh, liberal as it is, as, as pro-Democrat party as it is, um, has, uh, you know, it's law right now that you can't racially discriminate in the state. And when it's been put on the ballot, the voters have said, yeah, so, no, no racial discrimination. So can I, can I interrupt here? Uh, is it that you can't racially discriminate? I mean, I think that that's different than say affirmative action policy, correct? Well, affirmative action, let me just be clear on my thoughts. Affirmative action does involve some racial discrimination. So that's, that's your opinion. That's not the, the language okay. in Prop 16. Okay. But correct? let me just lay it out. Let me just lay it out. Okay. You can say, so, you can, but hold up. You can say that, that that's a positive, that like we should show some racial preference. All I'm saying is that I, I don't that think is, that's what affirmative action is. It's not racial preference. As a matter no of fact, racial in, component as, as, a, as a matter of fact, in Regents of the University of California versus Baki, which I'm sure we're all familiar with, which is 43 years old, says that you can't create things like racial quotas. So there's really no uh, the basically the idea behind affirmative action is that if you have two equally qualified candidates, you don't take an underqualified candidate over someone who is better qualified okay. because of their race. That would be discrimination. And I would but, agree with you. I okay. think we all three would, would agree that we should get rid of that. But, but Jason, that's not the law. Jason, hold tight. Just on this, let me clarify on this point, and then I'll let the congressman and, and you can answer. So if you have two equal candidates mm -hmm. and you have to assess and, you, the, and the winner is going to be whoever has a certain race, you're demonstrating a racial preference, no? Well, I think, I think you should, and I'll tell you why. Because I think it would be a total disservice, let's say an educational university, if uh, you're saying we're, we're gonna train the future leaders, the future corporate leaders, the future political leaders, and if there were not uh, a representative uh, number of qualified uh, African-American or Latino leaders, and I don't believe uh, that uh, uh, just looking at test scores is the only factor that talks about a person's resilience, a person's grit, a person's creativity. Sure. Uh, and so if you're looking at just from a perspective of what is best for the kids themselves, I would say having a, a, a class that looks like America is going to give them a better shot to succeed. <laughs> How are they going to, let me ask you this, you're the CEO of Apple Computers, I'm mm -hmm. hypothetical because they're in my district. And you've never been exposed to significant black or Latino leaders uh, in your education. And then Apple Computers has George Floyd happen. And do you think you're going to succeed as CEO or would you have had a better shot if you had had that exposure? So from my view is the reality is we're living in a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy. And if you want people to actually succeed, uh, you should expose them to the diversity of this country. 
Yeah, what's interesting though about like a company like Apple, and I realize this is not the point of the example you just made, but that they use these racial issues as a way to sort of conceal their behaviors broadly. So like what's happening overseas, you know, we, we know the story of Apple is that like, uh, like at one point in order to enter the Chinese market, they decided, remember how our, our iPhones, I have one right here, it used to have uh, designed in, um, in, in California that the Apple products were designed in California. Right. It used to be right on the back of the phone. It's no longer on the back of the phone anymore because basically all of the Chinese labor that they had hired was upset that it said designed in California. <laughs> and they were so upset and they were like, okay, we're going to remove it. And, um, and then meanwhile, like they kind of, I don't know if I, I can't explain how Apple's doing it precisely, but Apple's part of a, kind of this big corporate movement to virtue signal about issues about race in the United States while simultaneously benefiting from exploited Chinese labor. And I'm like, and, and I realize that's good for their business goals, but I don't, I'm not sure that's great for America. Well, look, I would be all for having uh, more uh, supply chains in the United States and having supply chains in allied countries. But this was a policy of uh, different Republican and Democratic administrations that sure. said, uh, let's have uh, cheap consumer goods. I mean, people don't want to pay 3000 bucks for their iPhone. So they, they, you know, this is not just Apple. Now, that said, I'm for policies that would help bring back the supply chain or have the supply chain in South Korea or India or countries that are more uh, allied, uh, you know, Xi Jinping. And look, Xi Jinping basically has made Jack Ma disappear. I mean, uh, yeah. all these people who say China, 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 if I were a tech entrepreneur, the last place I'd want to be is China. I mean, Gigi, Jack Ma basically made some lukewarm criticisms of Xi Jinping, the type of criticisms I'm subject to every hour on Twitter. And the consequence was that he was basically told to, to, to uh, disappear from the scene. Yeah. No, his story is wild, Jack yeah. Ma. Yeah, well, I've, I've been actually going a little bit on, on uh, Xi Jinping and... Uh, China. Um, I'm hearing rumblings, and I think Vince, you may have mentioned this as well, that that perhaps uh, President Xi is actually in trouble in China. Do you have any kind of like that, that perhaps they're, you know, he's losing popularity within the, the Communist Party, and that we could see new leadership in China? Uh, do you have any insight on that? I don't have anything beyond what I read in the papers. I mean, I don't have any uh, special briefing on it, but I would say that you look at some of his actions, making himself a leader for life, uh, requiring the Communist Party to have a seat on every tech company, uh, making going after uh, some of the prosperity of tech and uh, trying to uh, clamp down on it, the extraordinary income disparity there. Uh, right. And China has a lot of problems. I mean, yeah. it doesn't mean that we underestimate them as a competitor, uh, but our system of government, our entrepreneurialism is much better than China's, which is why I think the United States is a much better long-term bet. Um, if Jason doesn't mind, I'd like to shift gears into uh, legislation here, because obviously one of the things before your caucus, you're part of the Progressive Caucus, you, I'm, get, get, make sure I have this right, you're the deputy whip. For the Progressive Caucus? I, I'm one of the deputy whips. Yes. One of the deputy whips. Okay, so your job is to, to kind of get, get the caucus in order. Um, <laughs> and and obviously, you know, you've been battling it out on two pieces of legislation critically over the past few months. One of them, the infrastructure package, which Joe Biden just signed uh, this week. The other, uh, what Biden refers to as the Build Back Better uh, legislation. Um, at this moment, as we speak, 
it looks like the future hangs in the balance for that legislation on the basis of a CBO score. Uh, so sort of, if you could lay out what your understanding is of the likeliness that this can pass the United States House of Representatives and what it depends on, because um, there were a number of sort of what is being referred to as the moderate block of the Democratic Party within the House who have said, hey, we need to see a score first. We need to figure out how much money this is actually going to cost um, the U.S. taxpayer and, of course, how much debt we might be going into to pass this. And uh, so we're awaiting that. And we saw reports earlier this week that the CBO score is not going to match what the White House claimed it would be, that it, the White House was claiming, the president claiming that it would cost uh, taxpayers nothing, that, it, that the cost would be zero um, thanks to tax hikes on the rich, he said, uh, as well as um, getting rid, rid of, you know, sort of the traditional waste, fraud and abuse going after tax cheats, for instance. Uh, but the early indicators are that the CBO score isn't going to be um, uh, zero. We don't know what it ends up at. But, you know, what what is your understanding of sort of the next steps here? I believe that the House will pass it. I think the bigger challenge is the Senate. I mean, Josh Gottheimer was a moderate uh, uh, member of Congress from New Jersey, leading some of the moderates, saying that he actually trust the Treasury's estimates much more on where the revenue will be on tax enforcement than the CBO. You know, I've never understood why there's such deference to the CBO. Republicans and Democrats, both administrations, uh, usually criticize it. I actually don't find their analysis uh, as good as many other econo economists. Now, fine, people want to look at it as one data point, mm -hmm. uh, fine. But ultimately, I think that many of the moderates will look at it and say they trust the Treasury analysis more, uh, and the moderates will, will vote for it. I, I think well, the bigger why? issue is... Why did they, I'm sorry, but why did they ask for a CBO score then if they don't, if they're not going to trust its output? I think they'll look at some of it that they wanted to have uh, independent verification, but that doesn't mean they're going to take it as, uh, as holy grail, which by the way, the Republicans didn't with the, the Trump tax cuts. I mean, right. you know, you don't have the Nobel laureates going to the CBO and their, their analysis on the minimum wage of the $15 was awful. It wouldn't, I mean, it, it, look, we could disagree. They're very, they're great economists at the University of Chicago, right against the minimum wage. They didn't cite half the relevant literature. So it wasn't even, it wasn't that I disagreed with their, their conclusion. It's just, it's not always the best work product. Hmm. That said, it's one work product. The moderates will, uh, will look at it. Uh, I believe they will vote for it at the end of the day. Uh, but the Senate is a bigger challenge. And, you know, obviously the president has to convince Senator Manchin uh, Senator Cinema to, to be on board. And that's something that uh, is going to be up to him. And, and that, I think, is the harder, uh, harder uh, bridge to, to cross. Yeah, it seemed to me that uh, the, the big challenge about taxing the rich is Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema, who are more or less in, you know, in the pockets of the rich. So it, it would seem, you know, we, we've seen actually uh, the wealthy, the extreme wealthy get wealthier over the pandemic while the rest of us struggled. You know, they, they gained, I think, $1.8 trillion uh, over the pandemic, the, the wealthiest, you know, the billionaires and, and uh, it has increased, the, they increased their wealth by 62%. Uh, but yet there are a lot of Republicans who say we can't tax the rich. So I, I'm wondering, what do you say to your colleagues? Because I'm sure you want to sometimes work across the aisle. And there are a lot of Republicans that call themselves populists. And you would think that left-wing populists and right-wing populists would be able to find some kind of common ground. Uh, what do you say to those that call themselves populists but still oppose things like paid family leave or affordable childcare, like from the GOP? 
I used a line, I said that the Republicans talk about family values and the Democrats value families, but I don't understand it. I mean, I understand why if you value families, if you want parents to be able to raise their kids, if you want one parent possibly not to work and to raise their families, which is usually what a lot of Republicans say, why you wouldn't want to make that easier. That's all paid family leave is about. It's if your kid gets sick, you should be able to take off from work and look after uh, your kids. If you have a, a parent who's sick, you should be able to do that. I don't understand why you wouldn't want uh, childcare so uh, that you're helping uh, working families. So you don't have this case where two parents are working till exhaustion and then not enough time to read to their kids or spend with their kids. Mm -hmm. These are pro-family policies. And some of the Republicans actually, uh, you know, have actually, Chris Burskick, uh, for example, has supported the child tax allowance. There are pro-family Republicans who are, who are for it. Uh, I, I would hope this is not a place that's partisan. Yeah, I've seen, I remember uh, you had uh, Mitt Romney's family plan uh, that came out that uh, was a pretty uh, generous framework in terms of sending cash benefits to families. I, I do wonder, like, you know, we've had a lot of big time government experiments that have taken place over the course of the last year when it comes to the types of money that we're sending out the door and the impact that it has on the average American and the American economy. And, I, and I've been wondering coming into this interview, Congressman, whether or not any of it made you reconsider any of your priors, like anything about your views has changed over mm. the course of the last year. Because uh, I can tell you just from personal experience, you know, going back into the 2020 timeframe of the pandemic, you know, you, you look around, you see so many struggling Americans as a result of the shutdowns. And there was a lot of bipartisan concern for, OK, how do we get money out the door to Americans who need it? And that's and it manifested itself in a number of these relief packages. But by the time the March relief package came out this year, $1.9 trillion, there was something like a trillion dollars of money that had not yet been spent. And yet another $1.9 trillion was right behind it. And this package included a lot of things like extending unemployment benefits, like the, the extra unemployment benefits, and sending direct payments uh, to families, especially uh, people who have children, and putting, putting a lot more money into the American economy that was printed by the Federal Reserve. And now we're seeing some of the inflationary impact of that. Biden saying that this week in Baltimore saying, yeah, you know, that March package. One of the ironies here is we send all this money out the door to take care of people, but it creates all this demand and it slows the supply chains and increase the costs of everything. And so I wonder if as you've watched this all go down, uh, did all of this like confirm your worldview or is there anything that made you go, huh, that's interesting. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about this in a new way for the first time, haven't seen it played out in the public. Well, look, let's say about $5 trillion of funding uh, to get through the pandemic, which is a once in a, a generation crisis. $3 trillion of that was under Donald Trump. Uh, yeah, $2 yeah. Trillion was under Biden. Uh, I believe that the $3 trillion wasn't, I voted for it because it was important to get money out, but I think it was too heavily skewed towards uh, buying out and bailing out corporations and uh, too skewed towards uh, having buying back purchase assets of uh, of corporate bonds. I'd rather that we had put that money directly into working families and yes. uh, into the middle class. And maybe we could have saved some of the money than not have the asset uh, bubbles, asset inflation that is part of uh, part of the inflation. And I do think we should have, you know, Larry Summers, others who know a lot about it. The inflation is often a monetary phenomena, whether the Fed should be out there buying up corporate bonds, buying up housing bonds, if, if they've been doing it too long. I mean, those are questions that we should ask in terms of the Fed's role. Uh, and there are people who are far smarter than me uh, about the Fed's, Fed's role. But what I would have said is 
We needed the help for the working class and the middle class. I don't yes. regret any of that, uh, any of those votes. Maybe it should have been coupled with a different uh, Fed policy. And I would have tailored the packages to be much more towards the, the working class and, and, and towards the middle class uh, in, in how we approached it. But, but just in terms of your views, did, was there anything that you thought like, like for instance, on extended unemployment, um, you know, we saw that uh, it had a suppressive effect on getting people back into the workforce. There were states that- did the, did the data bear that out? Cause I yeah, no, states... I, I disagree with that, Vince. <laughs> you know, I know I, you disagree. I'm, I'm, I'm relying on a survey, a study that I saw from the Texas Public Policy Foundation that said that the states that began getting rid of it earlier saw much more rapid rises in their employment rates than the states who waited. I the exact opposite. I mean, I, I don't, yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I take your, I'm not, I'm sure you're being uh, accurate in what you're citing, but there's studies that are, that say the exact opposite, that the states that were taking unemployment didn't see really any uh, material, uh, material effect. I think what has happened bluntly is that people were at home, they reconsidered their jobs, they reconsidered whether this is really what was paying enough, was meaningful for them. They mm -hmm. liked time with their families. They had challenges with schools. I, I will say this, okay, this is a policy. I think we should have opened the schools uh, probably faster. Uh, I, and in some of the long school closings, that to me had a materially negative effect on families and, and, and kids. So that, you know, you say, what what is a policy that I wish I was probably advocating for louder? Some of the schools in my district weren't open uh, the entire entirety of last year. And that, that hurt, I think, families. Yeah, I agree. So yeah. uh, go ahead, Jason. Yeah, I, I was going to shift gears. So if you have a follow-up to that. Well, I, I'd like to just ask one more question about sure, Build Back Better. Um, yeah. And, and this question revolves around a criticism that I've seen, and you may have made the same criticism. And if you so, please forgive me for not realizing. But I've seen Bernie Sanders has been critical of the current arrangement of this Build Back Better program because it offers massive tax cuts for very wealthy Americans, particularly in blue states, uh, in the form of the SALT deduction. So right. uh, the, during the, the Trump era, SALT deductions were limited at $10,000. That, that would be state and local tax deductions. And so if you live in a state with high taxes um, and, and, you are, and you are a very wealthy American, millionaires, um, you stand to benefit in a very big way with this package. And this is just as a political matter, it'll break down that, that blue states like California are going to benefit to a greater extent. Uh, there's you know, more rich people there, more rich Democrats there, and certainly Democrats run those systems. And so are you comfortable with the massive tax cut that is on the way for so many millionaires when the point of the package, at least in the words of the White House, is to raise taxes on those who make over $400,000 and not to raise taxes in any way on people who make less than that. It's not how I would have written the bill. I mean, I am for the, I'm still gonna vote for it because it's obviously every bill you don't get exactly what you want, but uh, I am for expanding the SALT deduction, particularly for the upper middle class. So for families making up to uh, 400,000, uh, I am for that. But when you're talking about a millionaire, I, mean, I don't think they should be benefiting uh, from the SALT deduction. I think these states uh, have higher taxes because they're spending it on public education, public transport. And if you are a lawyer and a doctor, a doctor and uh, a, a nurse, and you're a family that's still got a mortgage and you still have expenses, you're better off than the middle class, but it's not like you're, you're rich, then I do think that the SALT deduction for those suburban families makes sense. Uh, but I think we ought to be taxing the millionaires and billionaires 
And this self deduction, to the extent it's going to cover uh, millionaires, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have written it that way. I would have put a put a cap at the four hundred or five hundred thousand mark. So I, I have kind of a broad question. Um, that's kind of a follow up, and then I have another question that's going to shift gears. But um, my question about that is this objective measure that we've been using for a long time, either to, to uh, look at poverty, I think it's like $20,000 or $26,000 for a family of four. And we've had the same measure for poverty since the 1960s, hasn't been adjusted for inflation and, and any of the changes in our economy. And then we have this objective measure of wealth of $400,000 for a family. And you know, one of the arguments that Republicans often make, which I think makes sense, is you know about a fifteen dollar minimum wage is that fifteen dollars in New York City, even though I think their minimum wage is even higher. It's like seventeen dollars or something like that. But fifteen dollars in New York City is very different than fifteen dollars in Alabama. You know, so maybe Alabama should be eleven dollars because the cost of living is lower. Um, my question is: Is this objective idea of four hundred thousand dollars? or more being wealthy, shouldn't that be adjusted for uh, where you live? Like $400,000 in Greenwich Village or Greenwich, Connecticut is very is probably very middle-class versus $400,000 in Alabama, which is you know, pretty wealthy. Should, should we kind of get rid of some of these objective measures or at least adjust them at this point? I do think we should have uh, cost of living taken into account. You're right. I mean, $400,000 in my district, uh, where an average home, even a two-bedroom, three-bedroom home is seven, eight hundred thousand or a million bucks, uh, means that you're still uh, have to be very conscious. I mean, you're much better off than most Americans, but it's not like you've got it, got it made. Uh, 400000 in other parts of the country, you can have a big mansion and you, you don't have to worry about expenses. So I think to the extent that we can have more cost of living uh, accounted for, that makes sense. There's an administrative cost to it though. And it's hard, it makes things, the filings more complicated, administratively more difficult. Uh, and that's why we, we haven't had it. But if there's some simple ways to account for cost of living, I, I would be for that. It certainly uh, would benefit my district, which has very, very high cost of living. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, the the real issue for me is more not how how we uh, measure someone being upper class or wealthy or one percent versus how we measure poverty, and I think I agree uh, with that completely. I think that's that's been you know a disaster. I think over the last you know fifty years where we haven't changed that measure of poverty, which of course affects the kind of uh, benefits people get. I, I have a friend who is who makes too much money, which is very little, by the way, too much money to get Medicaid in Georgia, but makes, wow. you know, but doesn't get health insurance from their mm -hmm. retail job. So they're uninsured right now um, because they, they make just too much, just enough um, that they can't get Medicaid. And I think that, you know, these kind of measures that we have that leave these kind of gaps for people who are functionally poor um, are problematic. So it's more about raising that idea of what we think of as poverty for me. But I, I also have a question. I know that you were um, that you were on the board for Planned Parenthood, Marmonti. Am I saying that correctly, Marmonti? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you guys have done your homework. <laughs> yeah, for several years. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Texas law targeting women's bodily autonomy and other laws around around the country, the heartbeat laws, uh, so-called heartbeat laws, and, and uh, what's going on in, in many conservative states? Right. Well, first of all, I, I obviously, being on the board of Planned Parenthood my whole life, have supported a uh, a woman's right to choose and, and the right for a woman to make the own her own decision about uh, such big questions in consultation with her family and, and her doctor. I, I guess here's my problem on the constitutionality of the Texas law, and I, I would hope even conservatives would agree with me. Put yourselves in the shoes where the law wasn't against a woman's right to choose, the law was against the Second Amendment. And imagine if a state uh, consider a liberal state, a state like New York, passes a law saying we're going to give people the private cause of action to go sue uh, gun shops. And we just believe that we could do this law and people can go sue gun shops. Don't you think that the Second Amendment would trump that and states shouldn't allow people to have a private right of action to sue things that uh, fundamentally violate constitutional rights? So I just don't, this is why I assume especially after oral arguments that the Supreme Court that is quite conservative is going to strike down the law. It just doesn't make sense if you believe that constitutional rights matter. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a very novel approach, and it was designed that way, uh, clearly, to, um, to uh, I, I think, in part to create, actually, the very judicial challenges that, that are arising uh, and to see, okay, put this back before the court, this issue of abortion, because uh, especially things like viability, I mean, Roe v. Wade, right, comes up with kind of an arbitrary establishment of where they consider viability and where we begin to, uh, you know, say that, well, it is permissible for states to have some restrictions against abortion after a certain time frame. But boy, I mean, the, the advances in modern medicine and modern science have really revealed that viability actually starts much earlier than what the Supreme Court had dictated uh, when they decided Roe v. Wade. And the ability of a baby to survive outside the womb uh, is, which is viability, uh, much earlier than most people thought, thanks especially to modern science and just imaging. I mean, people seeing a baby and seeing a heartbeat has really affected people's views on this subject. Uh, and, um, you know, I, it's just, yeah. it's just amazing. I mean, I think it's, it's just, I, I think part of the reason the Texas law got created is because they really wanted this issue to be revisited in the interest of protecting the life of these babies. Well, they've done it in a way that's not very smart constitutional law, and I don't see it helping their case if they end up having a decision where you've got Roberts and even possibly Kavanaugh and even possibly Justice uh, 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 Gorsuch or others uh, saying, no, the law is unconstitutional. Based on just the uh, oral arguments, it doesn't seem like they did very well. Now, I'm not reading tea leaves, and you never know, right. uh, but I actually think it would be a blow uh, to them if, if a relatively conservative court uh, overwhelmingly strikes the law down. You know, it's it's also interesting. Um, at six weeks, which is you know the way uh, a lot of states are trying to cap this. You know, they call it a heartbeat law, but a baby or a fetus, excuse me, doesn't have a heart at that point. Um, <clears throat> so it's not really a heartbeat that you're seeing um, because a fetus doesn't have a heart. Like the heart hasn't developed yet. So it's, it's kind of a misnomer to call it a heartbeat bill when you can't have a heartbeat if you don't have a heart. Um, but uh, I do agree with Vince. Vince is correct about the fact that viability is, 
you know, I, th I think I just saw there was a, uh, a baby that was delivered at 20 weeks and survived um, or is surviving thus far. So, you know, I, I think, you know, 26 weeks may have been an, an over, you know, an overestimation. It, it may be able to go down to as low as 20 weeks in terms of mm -hmm. what viability is. Um, I have a, a question. You know, I watched a fascinating interview uh, with you and I'm going to do what, what all these people do to me when they take clips of Vince and Jason <laughs> Save the Nation. And I'm going to say an interviewer at another podcast. <laughs> uh, actually, uh, it, it, it was The Breakfast Club. I have no, no problem mentioning uh, The Breakfast Club. But you gave a fascinating interview about wealth creation, particularly for people of color. And I really think it would be interesting to get uh, you... And, uh, you know, we interviewed a guy named Vivek Ramaswamy, who, uh, yeah, and, I'm and familiar you, with him. yeah, you, you, you know, you both talk about some of the virtue signaling that goes on in Silicon Valley and in other places in terms of, you know, Black Lives Matter, but not thinking about ways that these, they can actually help, uh, you know, in terms of wealth creation in a lot of black communities and how that's been ignored by a lot of corporate America. And one of the things that you talked about that I found really interesting, and of course, I'm just gonna kind of let you go because I think you say so many interesting things about this, um, is that there's a lack of venture capital in uh, for black entrepreneurs, black tech entrepreneurs, and that maybe the government should match uh, venture capital that goes into uh, black tech entrepreneurs. So I, I kind of just wanted you to just kind of go off and, and and talk about this issue because I found it really fascinating. Well, I appreciate that. And let's start with some basic facts. My district, Silicon Valley, Apple, Google, Intel, Yahoo, Cisco, LinkedIn, all in the district I represent. Around that area, $11 trillion of market cap, $11 trillion of market cap. We have in 2025, we're going to have 25 million digital jobs in this country more than construction and manufacturing combined. Wow. And those jobs pay $80,000 a year, uh, twice the median income. Now, I, we can't just have a country where if you grow up in my district, suddenly you have access to enormous wealth generation, all of these jobs, all of these opportunities, the engine of wealth generation in the modern economy. But if you grow up in a predominantly black community, or a predominantly Latino community, or in a rural community, you don't have the avenues for wealth generation in the modern economy. The racial wealth gap in this country is increasing because there's a racial wealth generation gap. Look at the Silicon Valley companies. How many people there are part of the IPOs? How many people are part of the venture capital? How many people are getting the stock options? Clubhouse, popularized by black artists. That's who made the Clubhouse popular. Well, how many Black Americans are actually going to participate in the wealth generation of Clubhouse. This is an enormous issue. The late John Lewis, and I, I had the great honor of doing an op-ed with him, he said, wrote, technology rights are the new civil rights. Technology rights are the new civil rights. We've got to empower people to be part of the wealth generation of the modern economy. And by the way, if you want to, by the way, if you want to compete with a billion people in China, we need to cultivate our talent 
uh, across this country. And we have not done that. The tech companies have a responsibility. We've got to have a responsibility to partner with HBCUs and universities to actually get people the uh, digital skills that's going to lead to employment. We need to do it younger from K through 12 to have that opportunity. But I think this has to be the, the, the calling, in my view, but one calling of the Democratic Party, that we're going to be the engine of modern wealth generation in communities that have been left out uh, in, in rural America and in, in black and brown communities. And we ought to speak to people's ambition. I mean, young kids that I've met in these places, they want to do the same thing in many ways the young kids in my district. They may not all want to go become tech software entrepreneurs, but they want to start a business. They want to make money. They want to get participate in prosperity. And we're not giving them the opportunities to, to fulfill their talent. Yeah, I'll just say that I think, uh, you know, coding classes in, in high school uh, and high schools across the country should be the new shop or the new, uh, you know, the new home ec where, you know, kids learn, you know, every kid learns the basics of coding. I, I think that that's incredibly important um, moving forward. And kids are really interested in that, you know, uh, across the board. They want to know how these uh, things work. Um, I'm wondering... coding, by the way, speaking up for coding, having when I, I did it when I was in school, it's also a good way to, to help the human brain think about the way logic works. So it's not just actually learning how computer programs are, are created. It's about understanding logic. So like when you when you code, you learn like, okay, you put this piece of data in, it affects everything else in this way, you know, or if, you know, um, or if you make a mistake, all of a sudden, you know, the, the program goes down, you have to comb through all of the code to find where the bug is. It's a, it's a really actually a re super interesting way to formulate your brain around logical patterns. Uh, and because the computer, it's, it's um, merciless. It's like, if you screw up the code, uh, you have, you have no choice. You got to figure out what you screwed up and fix it. Absolutely right, Vince and, and Jason. I think we make it too intimidating. I think for folks, they think, okay, you know, uh, am I really going to have to learn all this coding and become a software engineer and go work for Google? No. Actually, if you want to work in agriculture, if you want to do a podcast, if you want to be a, a thoughtful public servant, if you want to be in retail, uh, if you want to be in entertainment, you're going to need a digital and tech proficiency. So it's a language of the 21st century. Now, mm -hmm. We're not saying go up, everyone's got to go become a computer engineer. And by the way, it's not that hard and it doesn't actually require all that, that much math or that much science. You can actually do it. Uh, we have a program in uh, Jefferson, Iowa, nine month course these kids are doing with Accenture and they're getting $65,000 jobs after it. So we just have to rethink, we have to demystify it. We've got to make it clear that it's going to be the architecture for a lot of modern jobs. And we've got to understand that a lot of communities have just been totally shut out, totally left out. This, in my view, ought to be the democratic message. We're the party of innovation and wealth generation. We're going to do it for the 21st century and bring your communities along. And by the way, you don't have to move. One of the dumbest things the Democrats say is, OK, go move to Palo Alto. They don't want to move to Palo Alto. Some people may. Great. We're a country of ambition. A lot of people want to live in the communities they grew up in with the way of life that they have with yeah. they love living in there and we ought to say great and we're going to give you the tools to succeed while living in the community you want yeah also there's the problem of of brain drain from those communities so you exactly. basically you have talented people who live in those communities who abandon them to go to cities not because they're actually trying to abandon that community but there's nothing there for them and they and they go somewhere else and the end result is that that community is left suffering because so many talented people have left
Um, I, yeah, I completely agree. I guess really the, the key is how do we solve these issues? And the problem I see, I'll just use Democrats, but I guess right. among, just in terms of left, left wing ideology, probably, or just left leaning ideology sure. is um, this concern with basically going into a specific institution, a successful institution and being like, you have to change everything about your admissions process or who you give these contracts to in at this level right here in order for this fix to be made. So like approaching like Silicon Valley and being like, you need to meet this minimum quota of working with these organizations or hiring this type of employee or looking for this race, whatever. Quotas are illegal. <laughs> yeah, but you understand, but you understand the point yeah. I'm making, which is like, you, you need to increase the amount of black contracts you're giving out, right? Or whatever the number is. That, well, they should, I mean, look, I think that they and, should in terms of increase the, uh, number of contracts right now. There's such a small number of it, right? I mean, yes, yes. Uh, so let me but, just make this point, and, I, and I'll let you yeah. let you respond. I'm looking at a, a local example here because I'm in I'm in Northern Virginia, and I and I host a radio program in Northern Virginia, so I'm, I'm familiar with this story. There's a school in Northern Virginia called the Fairfax County School of Science, Thomas Jefferson School of Science and Technology. It's uh, frequently every past, every year. It's the number one high school, public high school in the entire country, according to U.S. News and World Report. Very successful, but over these over over the decades, it's increasingly become dominated by Asian students, and so the big debate within Fairfax County was, well, we need to racially diversify the school, and so they changed the admission process to make it less about merit and more about a lottery system. They actually established a lottery system to welcome more students in of other races and not just so many Asian students. The end result was that yes, more Black students started attending the school in this past year, but also actually interestingly, more white students. I uh, got into the school because fewer Asians did as a result of the lottery. Now, that kind of thinking actually kneecaps the success of that institution because it becomes less about the, the performance of the students and more about making sure that they have a racially diverse group of students. And my reaction to that was, wait a second, why don't we fix all of the schools that feed into Thomas Jefferson? So like if, to prepare students for that rigorous admissions process, so like give the kids school, give the parents school choice, give them the ability to, to pick a school that that is going uh, to help their their kid excel and fix those earlier schools rather than going to that higher level of the, of the system, the chain. Right. And saying, here's where you need to change the way you do admissions, because that actually doesn't help anybody that I, I, I think. What do you what do you think of that, Congressman? I think the school is probably going to still continue to do well. I don't I don't uh, you know, you would know the data. And I'm for charter schools. I'm mean, for having some, uh, which is not, uh, you know, a conventional opinion in uh, my party, but I'm for public right. charter schools and having some uh, sense of innovation in charter schools, recognizing that the 90% of folks like me still will be the products of public school. And we want to make those public schools ex extraordinary. But let me just say something about the Asian American, African American experience, because we have to just talk factually here. The Asian American community wouldn't be in this country largely in significant numbers like it is today if it weren't for the sacrifices of the civil rights movement and the African American experience. No community in this country has faced greater discrimination, a greater oppression, greater uh, subjugation than the African American community. The Asian American experience is not the same. And it was right. the civil rights movement that led to the 1965 Immigration Reform Act that allowed my parents to come here. Before that, Basically, if you were not European, you couldn't come to the United States. 
So yes, the Asian American community, many of whom came here uh, with, as from the elite institutions in their country. You know, my parents always say we came here with $8 in our pocket. And I'd say, yeah, dad, that's great. And I admire your story, but you also had an IIT degree. It's like having an MIT engineering degree. So let's not say, okay, uh, they've come here and their kids are doing really well. And now we're going to look at the, comparing them to the, the African-American experience where you had white flight of cities, where you had redlining, where you had Jim Crow, where you had a generation of legacy of slavery and say somehow why, why, that's not comparable. That's not comparable. The Asian-American community should be doing everything we can. I tell you, say this in Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. everything we can to provide more opportunity and empower the African-American community given that on their backs, from their sacrifices is why so many of the Asian Americans were allowed to come to the United States. I'll say one more thing. We all should be proud of what we're trying to do, which is become a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy. If it was easy, someone else would have done it. No country has done it in the history of the world. And we will do it. But it's going to require, I think, not putting one group against another, but right. thinking how do we empower every group uh, to participate. More with Congressman Rokana in one second, but we just wanted to remind you that Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Gold Co. Amen. <laughs> oh well, I yeah I I I yeah I just I wanted to give space for Jason to jump in. I agree. Um, I agree with that goal. I just I fear that we're working against it. That's all. Just this and 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 sowing divisions when we need not. Um, and what we should be doing, like to fix the disparities that you just referred to is to start from the very bottom right i mean the the whole this is not it should be about the whole person's life and not just you know after they graduate high school that you know if they're disadvantaged yeah. in some capacity that they be given some extraordinary opportunity to correct for that disadvantage uh we need to be in a position where we're supporting and i know you support this so i i'm just preaching to the choir here but supporting the the growth and uh, of healthy families and uh you know and especially two-parent households and um, successful early education and giving parents choices about where to send their kids and what kind of education that kid receives. Uh, that, those, I think all those goals are, are super important and foundational and uh, could result in the outcomes that we all want. So it sounds to me, Vince, like you, you support Build Back Better, like you support universal pre-K, right? So, you know- I so don't, but for get, different reasons. I don't, so but for different reasons. Kids can get that, that early start and get a good education uh, early on in, in their school careers. And I also don't think that these things are mutually exclusive to, to give people opportunities. Uh, one of the things that we've seen until very recently, uh, you know, the New York Times did a, did a big um, story on this a couple of years ago. I think it was like 2018 that, you know, with Roe being a, a Yale law grad, um, that a lot of the elite universities that over the, you know, since 1980, I think it was like 1980 to 2018, if I'm not mistaken, I might be mistaken there, but that uh, Black and Latino admission had gone down actually over that time. It, it wasn't that, you know, this is even with all these affirmative action policies that people complain about and sue about all the time, that actually it hadn't gone up until like, you know, you got uh, that Harvard class that was about 15% Black. And one of the things that we have to understand is that where Black and Latino kids go, so goes the nation, the future of the nation. The vast majority, I won't say the vast majority, but if I'm not mistaken, uh, the majority of the, of the people or the children in this country 
under the age of 18 or of color, you know, um, that might, that also includes Asian uh, kids. But I, I also think one of the things that the mistakes that we make when we talk about race with Asian Americans is that we lump them all into one, you know, one group when, you know, they're South Asians and it's very different if you're one of the Hmong people than if you're Japanese American. Like those are two different experiences or Filipino and Vietnamese and, and Indian American and what region of the country you live in. Um, we try to put those, you know, all into one category, which I think is not necessarily um, the right way to, to go about uh, talking about that. And, and I think it's a, it's a lot more diverse when you talk about certain Asian groups versus others. Um, but I think the important thing is, you know, what, what the Congressman just said, and, and that is pitting groups against the, against one another, rather than, um, trying to make, make it so that more people have opportunities to get good education. Um, I agree with you, Vince, that it should happen at all levels. Mm -hmm. Um, and it should start at three years old, you know, um, three-year-olds should be learning their letters and their numbers and learning things that are going to prepare them for when they go to school. And that's actually going to make them more competitive uh, moving forward. So we agree about trying to improve all schools, but I don't think that's mutually exclusive with, you know, from uh, giving it, people it, opportunities. With the caucus, but I, uh, you know, I, I, I think this is, you know, we need more kinds of conversation like this uh, Vince adjacent, we're, uh, we're getting to the real issues. Uh, we're understanding uh, differences in a, in a respectful way. Uh, and so I appreciate your podcast. I appreciate the effort you're trying to do. Uh, too often in the current environment, you, you can't have disagreement or a conversation uh, without it uh, resulting in people questioning your character, questioning your patriotism. And I think one of the things we ought to do is start to have reason in dialogue play a bigger role in our democracy. It's our only common currency given the extraordinary difference. Yeah, well, Absolutely. Congressman, we're really, I, I, you got cut off there, but I think you said you had to go because you have caucus business, but yes. um, we appreciate you. We re very much appreciate you doing this today and we hope we can do it again at some point. I'd love to, Absolutely. love to, and let's be in touch. Thanks, Congressman. Thank you so much, Thank Congressman. You. Thank you.